Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the 2020 Mindset Leadership Conference. I'm your host, Riley Jensen, and today I'm super excited to invite or, or to have uh, invited and, and he accepted the invitation to come and share some of his experiences with us. But this is the, I'd like to introduce to you the head coach for the Weber State Women's Track and Field and Cross Country, Coach Paul Pilkington. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad I could. Yeah, yeah. It looks like uh, looks like you're um, you're getting your mountain man on a little bit. You've been uh, you you you've been enjoying this break a little bit. This COVID nineteen. Well, I don't know if enjoying it's the right statement, but our our head football coach challenged all the coaches to grow their goatees out. And yeah, I got a little. It's not so good, but yeah. And the long hair. Um, we were supposed to host the conference championships, track and field, Big Sky Conference next week, which obviously got canceled and my women's team is very good. We thought we could win conference or we definitely had a great opportunity to win. So I had to deal with them. I was going to grow my hair until conference meet and then they could cut it if we won, buzz it. And so when the season got canceled, our first Zoom team call, that was one of the first things they said, coach, are you going to let it grow for another year? <laughs> and I said, I don't think I can do that. But, I don't think you can do that one, huh? No, but but my wife said I could, so I but I don't yeah, think yeah. it's gonna happen. Yeah. So you got permission. You just don't know if you can handle it. Right. <laughs> yes. Um there's you know, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of different things going on out there, but I, I, I wanted to focus on kind of the mentality of athletes, the, the mental toughness that you've shown in your life how you've overcome things, because I think there's just a real positive benefit that comes from talking about going through adversity and overcoming adversity and talking about the mental game. And so I just wanted to, you know, gain some of your insight. Um, the first question I've been asking a lot of coaches is not, maybe not the, the dictionary definition, but what do, you, what do you think mental toughness is? What's your own personal definition of mental toughness? I think just the ability to focus when things get difficult. And in, in, in our sport, within track and field, there's always hard parts of a competition and, and handling that pressure and be able to focus and come through and compete to a high level. I mean, that's my, I guess, definition of, of mental toughness is that ability to just focus and come through when pressure is on. And I always like to talk to my athletes about there's positive pressure. You know, when we go into competition, I want them thinking, hey, this is exactly where I want to be. This is what I want to be doing. And not look at it as, as a stress. It is a stress, but it's a positive stress. So that they walk into that stadium or they walk onto that field and they're going, hey, this is what I want to be doing. And turn it into like, man, let's – get excited about this and the opportunity that, that they have to compete. Yeah. How do you, how do you do that? How do you get them excited about it? What? Well, we talk about it. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a common thing with, at least with, with my team that we'll talk all, you know, just like we're discussing now. I like, I want you focusing and thinking of and looking forward to competition, not, not dreading it going, Oh no, what if, what if I don't compete well? What if I fail, but look at it as a, as a, as a positive type of thing. Yep. And so we'll, we'll make a, a real concerted effort to d discuss it and talk about it, especially going into big meets. 
Um, yeah. in, in our championship phase of it, yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've worked with a considerable amount of your girls, and there's no question they're men a mentally tough bunch and a really, really talented bunch. They're, they're some of my favorite athletes I've ever worked with. So I don't, I don't know what you're doing as far as, like, the questions you ask or the type of, type of women that you're recruiting, but, man, I, I sure like them. They're, 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 they are intelligent. They are athletic. They are willing to keep learning. It's just a – it's a unique, it's a unique uh, team, even within Weber State. I think, I think that's true about Weber State in general, but even within Weber State, the girls on your team are, are really exciting to coach and, and be around because they're, they're so open to coaching, at, at least that's my opinion. Right. No, and, and they are. And, and, you know, I'm fortunate that I have a couple of real good assistants and, and, and Tiffany Hogan and Robert Weir is one of the best throws coaches in the world. And, so we, I'm, I mean, I love going to work. Yeah. I miss it during this, this, this shutdown. It's, uh, it, know, it's I, difficult. Yeah. It's been really hard for me. I'm, I'm, I, I, I tell everybody COVID-19 is kind of anti Riley, right? It's, <laughs> it's anti church. It's anti hug. It's anti social and it's yeah. anti sport. I'm like, dude, you're taking everything. It's taking everything away from me. So I'm, <laughs> I'm using all these mental toughness tools on myself during this uh, quarantine, but trying to do the right thing to do my part and help out. But it's been, it's been hard for me too. Um, do you feel like your definition of mental toughness or uh, let me shift that a little bit different. Do you feel like mental toughness is different now than it was maybe when you were running? Um, I don't, I don't think so. I think it's it's the same. Um, I had a really good friend, Paul Cummings. He was a Olympian, um, ten thousand meters, multiple time national champion. Um, he broke the world record in the half marathon, and he was a world class fifteen hundred meter runner also. So he had wide range. And I had spent nine months with him, picking his brain about training, and we'd go on runs. And I'd be asking questions and asking questions. And finally, I had run a marathon in Minneapolis. And I slipped and I ran 215.23, which is, it was like at the time was national class, but it wasn't world class. Um, I slipped on the ice that winter, had knee surgery. So it was a complete year until I ran another marathon. And I ran the same marathon, the same course. And I ran the exact same time to the second for 26.2 miles. And I was really frustrated. <laughs> and so I was talking to Paul Cummings about that. And he told me this story. He, he said when he was a young distance runner, he was at the Olympic Training Center and they brought a guy named Milt Campbell. And he said, have you heard of Milt? And I said, no, I didn't know who he was. And Milt Campbell was a decathlete. And Milt Campbell spoke to these, all of these elite American distance runners and told them the story of when he was in college. He, got a, he had a, a roommate from Jamaica who was a 400-meter runner. And that Jamaican would stand in front of the mirror for 10 minutes every day and say, I'm the greatest distance, or not distance runner, I'm the greatest 400-meter runner in the world. I can beat anyone in the world. I'm the greatest 400-meter runner in the world. And... Milt said he wasn't, and he wasn't even close to being the greatest. And I, would, I started teasing him about it. And he said, one day we almost got in a fist fight. 
over it. And he said, I went to my college coach and said, I want a new roommate. And the coach asked him why, and he told him, and he said, no, you two work this out. So Milt, they came to an arrangement that Milt would stand in front of the mirror and say out loud once, I'm the greatest decathlete in the world. And then he wouldn't bug his roommate, the 400 meter runner about standing there for 10 minutes saying I'm the best 400 meter runner in the world. And Milt went on to tell the story that, hey, after about six months of doing that, I started doing it a little bit longer. I was doing it while I was shaving. I'm the best decathlete in the world. I can beat anyone in the world. And he said, six months of that, my performances improved and got dramatically better. And a year of that, and he said, I went from being an okay decathlete to one of the best in the country. And two years later, Milt won the uh, meddled in the in the decathlon in the olympics and his roommate from jamaica won the silver medal in the 400 wow. and he and he told paul cummings he said the only change i made was this working on my mental ass work every day and so here's paul cummings telling me this story and i said and paul had again been world record holder olympian i said paul do you stand in front of the mirror every day and say, I'm the best distance runner in the world. And Paul is a really shy guy. And he just said, yeah, I, I do that. And I went, wow. So <laughs> then I said to him, well, do you think I should do that? And he laughed. And he said, well, why do you think I'm telling you this story? <laughs> <laughs> so I went home and my, my three kids were young. And I thought, if I stand in the bathroom and go, I'm the best distance runner in the world. I can hear him running to their mom and go, hey, mom, dad's talking to himself. And what's more, he thinks he's the best distance runner in the world. And so I just kind of, I told my wife that story. And she just said, huh. And a week later, I came home and hanging in our bathroom next to the mirror is a plaque that she had made that said, I'm the greatest distance runner in the world. So every time I walked into that, bathroom I would see that so I I thought well she's serious about this so I still couldn't bring myself to stand in front of the mirror and say I'm the greatest distance distance runner in the world but at the start of every single run I was running twice a day 150 miles a week for the first mile I was in my mind I'm the best distance runner in the world I'm the greatest distance runner in the world I can beat anyone in the world twice a day a total of about 12 to 15 minutes and so I ran that in October 215 23 in January I ran 211 13 and was number one in the world for 10 months fastest time in the world for the first 10 months of the year and the wow. and I, I tweaked a little bit of my training but most of it was just I'm the best distance runner in the world and you start your subconscious can't tell the difference it starts no, to believe no. it. And, and so I don't, and I mean, I try and teach my athletes that too, that even though they're not the best in the world, they're not even the best in the conference necessarily right now, but they can get to that point. And we, yeah. we, you know, we talk about that. So. No, I, I, you told me that story a long time ago and I've been meaning to ask you the name of this guy again for a long yeah. time. Mill so Campbell. I'm, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you told me the story again, because I, there's no question. And you're absolutely right. The science, and the research is clear that we can't tell the difference between imaginary situations and real situations. So when we imagine ourselves running 
as the fastest person in the world, our mind sees that as a real happening. And, it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's really interesting because that's why we get all geeked up in sports psychology about imagery and visualization is because right. there's all kinds of studies out there of guys just imagining themselves shooting free throws and then other guys shooting free throws for like a six-week period and the amount of improvement is exactly the same right so yeah. it, it's just it's just fascinating and i i think you're right and and people joke about self-affirmations they talk about you know oh this is silly but the ones that are doing it like you i mean number one for 10 months the number the fastest time for 10 months is, is that yeah what i heard yeah yeah well i think your story is pretty incredible i looked up some of the statistics on on wikipedia i wanted to ask you about one scenario that i thought was interesting for a while there, you'd been hired to be a runner or a rabbit, I guess, for, for marathons, which, which yes. is basically like you're the person who sets the pace, right? And then you kind of dip off after a while to, uh, you know, just help along the way so that the people that are at the front can continue the pace that they need to be at. And uh, there's, there's one statement in there that in Los Angeles, I guess, at one point you were hired to be that and nobody was staying up with you. So you just went ahead and won the marathon. I mean, is that how it works with you? Who, who does that? <laughs> well, yeah, it was, it's, no one had ever done it. It's happened since then. And it had happened on the track one time in a 1500 where Tom Byers was a pig rabbit and ended up winning the thing. But in marathons, the races want fast races. So it's, it's, it's better for television. It's better for watching and, and no one wants to be the sacrificial lamb. So if, if I'm running five minute pace, five flats for 20, 26 miles, that's a 12 mile hour headwind. So it's just like bike racing or car racing. You can draft. And so instead of breaking that 12 mile hour headwind, you're tucked in behind somebody, you're saving your energy. And so to get fast ra races, they'll hire quite often a, a rabbit or a pace setter, and it's a predetermined pace. So the night before they get all the elites together or the meeting the day before and say, hey, here's the predetermined pace. Now, you're welcome to go faster than that, but the rabbit's going to run this pace. And you can tuck in and use it for, and they're going this far into the race. And, and I would, I was real good at, at just locking in and running this, the, just the same pace and I got paid and I, I would I'd run basically usually about two marathons a year and then I would rabbit others because I could go make six to nine thousand dollars as a pace setter and be recovered within a couple of days and so it was and I was running full-time was a good addition good way to supplement my income a running income right In Los Angeles um, I had rabbited there the year before there'd been a real hot day and and, and this time it was I had planned on running the entire race. So we had told the, the race director, the elite athlete coordinator, hey, if Paul feels good, he's going to run the entire thing. And they were like, that's great. That's fine. Just hit the predetermined time. And I had asked them, well, what if no one goes with me? And, we, and the race, LA had the current world record holder in the race. And, and they were paying, said, we're paying him a lot of money. He better go with you. So I said, so you just want me to hit the pace? And they said, yeah, you hit that pace regardless of who goes with you. And so that's what I did, and no one went with me. And I, and I was feeling fantastic. In fact, by, 
by 10 miles, I was just going, I can't believe no one's going with me. And by halfway, I went, they're never going to catch me. I, 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 I'm just <laughs> on today. And it was, it was, the race was televised on ESPN. It was live. And they had a, a film crew out there on a, a motorcycle platform that had an announcer with the camera and the, with the lead. Yeah. And he's yeah. talking to me the whole way. Um, Tony Revis is his name. He does that covers a lot of races. He's telling me the time gap the whole way. Okay, Paul, you have 30 seconds. Paul, you have a minute. Paul, you have a minute and a half lead. And then he finally pulled up to, next to me about 16 miles, and he said, are you going to keep going? And I said, I just nodded and smiled. <laughs> and then he just – and he went, oh, they don't know he's going to – but anyway, they never caught me. I mean, it, was, yeah. it, was, it was fun, and it was, uh, it was the U.S. National Championship, so I won the National Championship plus – got paid my rabbiting money plus my prize money it was my biggest payday in my running career that's awesome that's, that? a, that's a cool story man I, I i think you know i was just thinking in my head like here's a guy you know like you said supplementing your income but you're in such good shape and doing so well and you're just like well i'm just gonna win it if no, one, if no one's gonna come why not me why not now right like I, I say that to athletes all the time why not you why not today why not this week you know and uh, that's, that's, that's a really fun story. Do you feel like um, mental toughness has carried over to your career? I mean, clearly, you're the number one racer in the world for a while. You're winning marathons around the world, around the country. Do you feel like it's carried over since? I mean, I know you're still running somewhat competitively now, but, you, but probably not in the same way that you did. No, I don't race anymore. I'm, I'm old, old and slow. I think it's carried over in the sense that um, I have some women who have turned, turned into world-class athletes. And I think me going through that process has allowed me to guide them a little bit in terms of here's the transition. Here's how you do this. So, you know, Lindsay Anderson, a girl from Morgan, makes the Olympic team and is one of the top steeplechasers in the world. Um, and that transition from, Hey, I'm just from a small town in Morgan, Utah to I can run, I can compete with anyone in the world. I mean, that, that's a mental transition that they have to go through. And, right. and I think that just me having done that maybe helps a little bit. That I know what they're dealing with and what they're going through and what kind of pressure they're under a little bit. And we do, I mean, we, and we talk about it. We, we don't, we don't back up. I don't back off of talking about pressure situations. It's just yep. like I said, we talk about it in a positive manner that, you know, when she walks, walks into the Olympic games, you're going, Hey, this is, this is what I've trained for. Right. Put all these years and years of work in, not like, Oh no, it's the Olympics. What do I do now? Right. She's, she's excited to be there. Yeah. Yeah, you keep talking about that, and it just reminds me of the phrase from Billie Jean King that I use quite a bit with athletes, and that's pressure is a privilege, right? Like, you're not here because you suck. You're not here standing at the Olympics because you're not good at what you do or that you didn't train hard enough. And so why not? Why not? Yeah. Why, why can't this be my day? And, and I tell people all the time, even in the business world, you're getting paid lots of money. To, to make pressure-filled decisions. That's, what, that's generally why people get paid a lot of money is because they have to make tough decisions. 
And I go, you know, the pressure, pressure is a privilege and you earned it. You've, you've done enough and people trust you enough and have, have kind of bestowed this upon you that you have this pressure because you've done the work and you deserve to be here. And if that doesn't build confidence, I don't know, I don't know yeah. what does, right? Like, yeah. you know, but um, God, that's, that's a great story. I think I read you have, you, you've had eight All-Americans and 13 All-American awards. So that means, I guess that means eight of them have had multiple. Is that what that is? Yeah. 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 So right. Pretty amazing record from, from Weaver state, right? You're, you're kicking out. And I, I can imagine that it's really, really beneficial to these athletes to have someone that's been there before. Right. Like, okay, now here's where the transition takes place. Now, instead of being the hunter, you're now the hunted. Now you're going from, you know, chasing everybody to now everybody's chasing you. And there's a different mindset from being the hunter and being the hunted. And then there's a different mindset from being, yeah. just the best in the big sky to one of the best in the world. And then there's, you know, there's all these steps that you've taken. So I can imagine that's a great resource for these women. That's, that's fun to hear. Um, well, and it, I mean, Sarah Sailors, who was second at Boston marathon and, and, you know, and, and she was just the 11th in the Olympic trials, um, but only about a minute and a half out of making the team. <laughs> and, and she's working full time as a nurse anesthetist. But yeah, she's, I mean, she's, if you talk about, I think talk about mental toughness, she would be one that I'd say she's as tough as it gets. I mean, she's, she's up at 4am to get her runs in. Um, she lives in Tucson. I talked to her, it was 96 degrees and she was doing mile repeats and 96 degrees. And, you know, that's just, that takes a different mindset and that's that's a mental toughness to just go hey yeah i know it's 96 but i'm gonna go make myself hurt in this in this heat and yeah yeah yeah. well tell me her name again sarah sailors sarah sailors i saw sarah sarah collister sailors but yeah i saw when she took second in the boston and uh you know it's just fun it's fun when we do interviews like this to be able to keep our eye on people that are competing and you know, I, I, another friend of yours that, that I read about that your friend, Ed Eyestone, I actually, during the Salt Lake Marathon one time, I was broadcasting and I was actually in the back of the truck with Ed Eyestone, you know, in front of the fastest guys and we were doing like a play-by-play and um, Ed, Ed taught me a lot about running in just one day, like literally just sitting with, yeah. that, with him in one day was, was amazing and you know, he was talking about the stride of the different runners and why this person's a strong runner and why this one isn't. And it's, it's amazing. I don't think people realize, and I, I hope, I hope you don't get this question that much anymore, but I remember when my dad was a tennis coach at Utah State University years back, people go, well, what do you do when you're not coaching tennis? And he's like, what? <laughs> like, that's what I do. That's, that's my job. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. People don't understand how much work goes into being a coach. I don't think they understand the hours of preparation and, and the thoughtfulness and the preparation that goes. Into being. Yeah. And the, and the planning and yeah. Right. And, and, you know, in the smaller sports, it's not like you have like, you know, a secretary that's planning all the hotels and the rental cars and all that kind of stuff. A lot no, of that, no, we do it all. And, it's and, all and, right on you. Right. Yeah. And, we're, we're the director of operations. We're the everything recruiting coordinator. Right travel and and people don't realize that that's you know that's that's tough too and that that takes up your bandwidth when you're trying to be a great coach so ed ed and i trained together for 12 years yeah yeah so we i mean he's my best friend 
and we even though he's a competition <laughs> at BYU but um, in fact I have a funny story about just be, the the marathon that I ran prior to winning Los Angeles was in Minneapolis in October and I had a I had a $50,000 bonus in my shoe contract for breaking the American record. And so I had planned on going to St. George and running St. George Marathon and break the American record because it's a fast course. You collect my $50,000, but it was all or nothing because, because there's no prize money at St. George. Right. And I had been down there. I had run the course um, three different times. I'd done workouts on it. I had everything set up. I had a pace setter, a rabbit that was going to help me out. Um, Kurt Black, who was All-American at Weber State. With a week of St. George, it turns out to be a very hot weekend. And the weather forecast was for 94 degrees on that Saturday, that first Saturday of October. Ed was running the Twin Cities Marathon that same weekend, which was on a Sunday, and it was the U.S. National Championships. So he... He calls me up and, and like four days before the, the race and said, hey, Paul, have you looked at the weather in St. George? And I said, yeah. And he said, it's going to be too hot. And we were both in great shape. And he said, why don't you just come to Twin Cities and we'll try and break the If we get good weather, we'll try and break the American record there. So I called my agent up. We had the same agent. He calls Twin Cities and said, yeah, I would love to have Paul, you know, short notice. So my whole strategy and plan, everything I visualized just changed immediately to a whole different course and a different race. Mm -hmm. But Ed and I had talked about, okay, you lead a mile, I'll lead a mile, and we'll trade off every single, every, every couple of miles was the plan. And mm -hmm. we just help each other. And then the plan was whoever has it for the last few miles wins the race, you know, and so the morning of the race, it's windy, it's a little bit warm. We talked and we said, okay, what do you think? And we both decided, no, let's just go for it. Let's, we had to average, um, I think it was 457 per mile for the 26.2 miles. We get into it and start going, trading off just like we talked about, hitting everything right on. And there's one guy that John Tuttle, who was an Olympian in the marathon, who was just tucked in behind us, he went with us. And I turned to him at mile five and said, hey, John, why don't you take your turn at the lead? He said, no, I'm just hanging on for as long as I can. And I had beaten him a month before by over a minute and a half marathon. So I thought he can't stay with us. Well, we get to mile six. It's Ed's turn to come up and he doesn't come up and take the lead. And I'm kind of just looking over my shoulder, still keep running. We get to mile seven, he doesn't come up. We get to mile eight, he doesn't come up. And then I come back and he, he comes up and he just whispers to me loud enough so John Tuttle couldn't hear, but he said, I'm not feeling good. You're, you, have, you know, you're going to, you're on your own. You got to take it if you want to do this. Yeah. So my whole visual mental preparation had been, we're going to trade every mile. I hadn't even thought through the process. What happens if, cause I knew he was in great shape. What happens if he's not feeling good? Yeah. So I had to make a split decision of what to do in the in at mile 10 in the race and, and I'm so my options were well I can slow down and but if I do that then I let 20 other guys back into the race that now I have this big gap on or 
I can just keep doing the same thing, same pace, or I could pick it up right now and drop them and, and let everybody fend for themselves in the wind alone. And in the heat of the moment, I made the wrong decision, which is I'll just keep running the same pace. So at mile, about mile 20, I decided, the heck with this, I'm going to slow down and force them to take the lead. And so I had to run a mile sl slower than 501. The next mile I ran 522 and they wouldn't take the lead. <laughs> and the next mile I went 524, they wouldn't take the lead. Because <laughs> I've been taking the headwind. So then I went the heck with this and I took off and went again and they went right with me. And at mile 23, Ed started feeling good again. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and he goes by me and he won the race and was US national champion. And I'm still in third place with 200 meters to go. And three guys came running past me in the last 200 and it cost me $15,000. But I'd led so much in the wind, I, I, I couldn't do a thing about it. I, I had not rehearsed mentally what I, what I should have done in that race. If I had and thought it through, I would have made a better race decision. And I think I could have won the race if I'd have been smarter about it. But yeah. the, the whole thing of having, and I've talked to my athletes about this too, you need multiple, you need to think through all different scenarios. What are you going to do if this happens? What are you going to do if this happens? What right. are you going to do if you get tripped in a race? You know, that kind of thing. How do you handle it? So that we try and prepare them and get them mentally to have rehearsed stuff so they don't have to make split this split second decisions that sometimes are wrong, the wrong decision. Right, right. Shifting gears a little bit to you, what's what, what do you think has been your biggest failure in your career or in, your, in running and, and how did you overcome it? What lessons did you learn from that? Um, I think probably my biggest failure was not making the Olympic team. Um, I made the world championship team. Um, I was in or qualified for four different Olympic trials. So that's uh, over 16 years, but there was, uh, the 96 Olympics, I, I should have made the team and, and I had the number two time going in and just injuries, probably overtraining, making poor decisions in terms of, of, of my own training. Uh, cost me so that's probably been the biggest thing I said yeah I probably really was good enough that I should have made an Olympic team but, yeah and 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 what did you learn from that um well I learned that life goes on <laughs> when you don't <laughs> sometimes that's that's a good lesson right? my family still loved me and yeah. and it it's uh it's not the end of the world when you, you know when you don't sometimes feel like hey gosh I put all this into it, but it's still, and the other thing I, I learned too, is you, you, you need to enjoy the process of, of the training and everything you're going through and the discipline of it, because you're never, no one ever wins as much as they would like to. And yeah. there's always ups and downs and, you know, you, ha you have to learn from, from getting beat or, or being hurt. You have to learn and how to adapt and how to make good choices so that maybe you're not hurt next time. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. If I were to, uh, if I were to bring in a bunch of your peers, maybe this is Ed Eyestone, maybe some college guys that you ran with, some world championship team guys that you, you ran with, and they, 
they were to fill in this blank, what would they say? They would say Paul Pilkington will be successful because he blank. What do you think they would say? Works hard. <laughs> Works hard. Yeah. I mean, that training wise, I think I, there were guys that had a lot more talent that I had that I, that I beat consistently. Um, and, and I think a lot of that is just the, the just work ethic and the dedication to it. Cause I, I got to a world-class level while I was still working full-time. And it, and it wasn't until I, I started making more money running that I stopped having a full-time job. And it, it, I think it delayed my development in terms of how long it took me to get to a world-class level. But I also had a family and, and you know, I wouldn't trade that for anything. They, they, they got to see me go through it and, and live it and watch it also. It was, yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I think work ethic is so important. I'm not exactly sure how or why, but it, it seems like time after time after time, I see athletes that aren't as talented, that work hard, that win. And I think somehow work ethic is tied to mental toughness. I don't know how to describe it, but somewhere in there is that will to be committed, to be consistent. I think, I think, commitment and consistency is part of that hard work, right? Like yes. if, if yeah. you wait around to, to feel good about every workout, you're not going to hit very many workouts, right? You're not always going to feel good. It's not, conditions aren't always going to be perfect, but you got to go compete anyway. You got to work hard. And so well, it's and a, the, Yeah. The, the nice thing about the, the relationship that Ed Eystone and I had is we would not kill each other in workouts. I mean, we did some really, really hard workouts, but it was not a competition in the workouts. And it, it made it so that I think we were, I mean, Ed made two Olympic teams while we were training together in a world championship. And I made a world championship. And so we got, we got, got some things figured out training-wise, but the fact that we were so competitive, but we could go, go to practice and not trash each other and, and kill each other in the workout, like, hey, I'm going to try and drop him today. I'm going to put the hurt to him today. I'm feeling good. He's not. We would, we would set our plan and we would stick to that plan in the workout. So, yeah. And it, it made it so that, I mean, yeah. 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 That's awesome. That's awesome. What um, did, did you, is there any coaches or any competitors that like really stand out to you on teaching you mindset and mental toughness? Um, Paul Cummings, the, the one who told me that, Milt Campbell yep. story, um, and and Chick Hislop, who was my college coach, at, and it was at Weber for a long time. Um, he, I think he did a good job of teaching teaching his athletes how to be mentally tough, and 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 he would challenge you. He would call you on it if he felt like, hey, you backed off in that race, you didn't fight through it. He he call you on it and call you out and say, hey, <laughs> that's unacceptable. You have yeah. to dig down a little more. Uh, yeah. uh, it wasn't all just pats on the back you know, at all. It was like, no. yeah. yeah. Hey, you need, you need a good person to push you once in a while. Right. It's like, yeah, hey, and that's not going to be what was good enough. For, and for one thing I, I, I learned from Ed by stone, he, he was probably the best I've ever been with that. If he had a bad race, he, he would forget about it and get it over, get over it so quickly. He was really good at not just dwelling on, oh, man, what's wrong? Oh, I had a bad race and, and getting down. He just 
you forget about it, move on and Hey, it'll be better next time. I'll, I'll, I'll be tougher next time. I'll have a better race next time. That's cool. That's cool. There's something about having a, a short memory, right? Yeah. In athletics and sport, you know, being able to just go, Oh, I don't remember that. You know, this is, this is the next thing that's in front of me, you know? And, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a cool thought. Do, do you, um, is there any advice that would, you would give yourself 15 years ago or 20 years ago that might've made your, your course or your path a little bit easier if you were to give yourself advice? Well, I wish I, I think I know a lot more about the marathon and training and coaching now than I did then. And, and I, I mean, Ed and I coached ourselves, we coached each other. And, right. and I think we both could have been better if we had the knowledge that we have now, <laughs> training-wise. And, and, so, and a lot of it is, is just the sports science has progressed, and they understand more about what the body can do, how hard it can go, kind of that kind of stuff. There's, there's been more research on it. So I wish I – that would be it, just the – yeah. I, I, I think I no. would have run – a lot faster um, if I had the knowledge back then that I have now. <laughs> you know, I was talking Anyways. to my mom. I was talking to my mom last night. What, what you're saying kind of reminds me of this. She said, she said, you know, Riley, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. And she said, wisdom is knowing not to put a tomato in your fruit salad. You know? <laughs> so, so maybe what you're saying is, yeah. you know, wisdom. <laughs> Maybe, maybe there's a little bit more wisdom. You probably had a lot of knowledge, but maybe there's a little bit of more wisdom that's happened over the years, right? Like, it's, um, it's an amazing path. It's an amazing path that you had. In, in, in finishing up our interview, is there anything that you'd like to share with people that are struggling with the, the unknown and the change of COVID-19 right now that, that maybe you'd like to impart to others? Well, it's, it, it just, it'll pass. I mean, We'll get it figured out. Science will get it fig figured out. Um, I think that, like anything in life, it's the pain short term. <laughs> I had a, 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 a marathon runner from Denmark who was a world-class marathoner who used to he, – he made this comment one time about marathons are just like beating your head against the wall. The only time they feel good is when you stop. <laughs> and and it's kind of, but it, but it does end he just say and but it, they always end so you, the pain is the pain is temporary yeah. and the same thing with this i mean it will eventually end and so the pain and the suffering is right now hopefully for most of us temporary yeah. right right well gosh i i appreciate it i appreciate your wisdom i i appreciate your your, your willingness to come on and, and answer a few questions today. Um, it's truly a pleasure to work with you um, every week up at Weber State. Um, you have incredible women on your team. You have incredible uh, knowledge. And we, we just appreciate you taking a little bit of time. So thank Thanks, you, Thanks, Riley. And, and every single athlete that I've sent to you has improved that has come to you. And, and I, so you're doing a, a great job with them. They're just – well, yeah. it's, it's certainly not because of my running acumen. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate you sending a few athletes here and there to me, but uh, we, we all know where the real credit goes. It goes to those athletes, right? The hard yeah. work that they put in, their willingness to grow and progress. 
it's it's fun. It's fun to be part of something bigger than me. So thanks again, Coach. Have a great thanks, day. Have a great yeah. weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks.